Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Remember when breakfast cereal was your secret weapon for starting the day off right? And then you grew up and realized it was full of sugar, excess carbs, and stuff you shouldn't eat. This episode is sponsored by Magic Spoon, a new cereal company that's discovered a way to recreate your favorite childhood cereals with zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three grams of net carbs in each serving. Magic Spoon offers four flavors of breakfast cereal, all based on all-time classics, cocoa, cinnamon, frosted, and fruity, plus a variety pack that lets you try them all. Magic Spoon spent over a year working with the best food scientists and chefs in the world to recreate the taste and texture of that classic sugary cereal, but making it taste so incredible you'd never guess it was healthy. It is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. I had a chance to try the Magic Spoon cereal. My husband was particularly excited about it. I am not a fan of Fruity Loops, so I did not try that one. The rest of them do taste like the sugary cereal of old. And also, if maybe you've heard me say this before, but I love having breakfast cereal around because it helps me actually enact a thing that I believe, which is you can always start your day over again. So sometimes when I'm having a really terrible day, I have breakfast. And having breakfast cereal is a particularly pleasant way to do it. It also reminds me of my childhood when um, I would watch Saturday Night Live with my grandfather and we would have Rice Krispies while we watched and it felt ultimately, utterly decadent and somehow breaking the rules. So I highly endorse not just Magic Spoon, but eating Magic Spoon not at breakfast. And you can try it if you go to magicspoon.com slash with friends to grab that variety pack. And be sure to use the promo code as well with friends at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash with friends and use offer code friends. In this sentence, I don't know. It just makes me This next sentence is amazing, and I'm really happy to be saying it. Just think about it as if it were in a novel. Ready? We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Isn't that an amazing sentence? Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. One of the differences that I have been eager to talk about on the show, although perhaps my eagerness is betrayed, my lack of eagerness is betrayed by the fact that we haven't done it yet, but we're doing it on this episode. We're going to talk about bodies, a topic that's near and dear to the heart of everyone, I would hope, and something we don't talk about enough, how bodies are different, how different bodies get treated differently. To help us dive into that conversation is Amanda Mull. She's a writer at The Atlantic. I am teasing the second half of our interview. The first half of the interview, we talk about mm, things, material things. We talk about her column, Material World, which is new to The Atlantic. It is one of the more uncomfortable conversations I've had in a while. I hope that's enticing and not off-putting. I mean, you probably wouldn't be listening to this show if you thought it was entirely off-putting. So stay tuned. Coming right up, Amanda Mull. Amanda Mull is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Material World, a new column on consumer culture and modern life that appears monthly in The Atlantic's print magazine and publishes regularly online. She's a longtime Golden Gophers football fan. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
We should clarify you aren't actually a Georgia Bulldogs fan, but welcome to the bandwagon. Yes, I am a Georgia Bulldog fan and alum, but very excited for the Golden Gophers and their uh, their recent success. I am excited to have you on the show because I'm a huge fan of your writing in general. Your beat is so interesting to me. Now, I know that you have this column that's sort of officially about consumer culture, but you've been covering fashion and kind of the the capitalism, <laughs> the floatsome and jetsome of capitalism for a while. And like my my overarching question for you, and maybe we'll just get, we'll, we'll use some of your specific columns as examples. But my overarching question for you and my interest in you is you I believe are someone who, like me, is both aware of all of the cruelties of capitalism and the injustices that it foists upon us, but also love shopping. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. The way I got into this uh, this role at The Atlantic is because I, I covered the fashion industry for 10 years, and people only ever enter the fashion industry because they love fashion. Uh, it does not pay well. It is hard to get into. It is not a pleasant place to work, by and large, especially when you're, when you're just starting out. It's not a welcoming place. You have to really believe that that there is something uh that there is something to be gained in dressing yourself and in and in making those types of choices uh for fashion to be worth it or you have to have a big trust fund which I don't have so if for me it was just as a true believer but what happens to what happened to me and what happens to a lot of people after working in fashion is uh you you sort of begin to see how the sausage is made and uh, the ways that that fashion is, you know, can be a sort of this beautiful um, source of self self expression for people, but is also, you know, a, a fundamentally manipulative, standard creating, hierarchy enforcing medium in which, you know, a lot of people also feel really constrained and really and really unable to express themselves. So I think that the the inherent sort of contradiction in in fashion as an industry uh, sort of paved the way for me to do the work that I do now, which is both, you know, which is critical of capitalism and critical of of how Americans in particular get set up to be consumers, uh, but also, I think, has a real affection for people who like to shop and really understands why people enjoy it. And I don't think that you can have one without the other or you're just not really fully understanding people's experiences. I think that a big problem with a lot of critiques of capitalism where they tend to start to sound atonal to most people is that it does sound like you can't have any fun. And it does sound like, well, if I'm if I'm aware of all these terrible things that this industry does, then I cannot participate in any way. And that's that's a hard hard standard to maintain and probably not worth maintaining i think um you ha- we have to live in this world right right and we derive pleasure where we can right i think that you're right where where people sort of have trouble thinking about capitalism is is in how they you know act day to day uh thinking about structures does not necessarily give you a good, you know, strong guidance on how to make individual choices about, you know, how to eat lunch or, you know, what to what to wear to, you know, your sister's wedding or something like that. And uh, and I think that understanding how and why people derive pleasure from those from those things and from those choices has to be something that we're that we understand and why people have been set up to derive that type of pleasure. Um, from, you know, from something commercial is also something that's really important to understand. I I think that understanding how people exist within systems and how that feels to exist within those systems is is important, as important as understanding the big structural things about the systems themselves. Uh, Well, I'm really going to be proud of this this segue I'm about to make, because speaking of deriving pleasure, um, I think your Goop article for The Atlantic... You gooped yourself. I did. I gooped um, myself. Which included the purchase of a vibrator, perhaps the first to be expensed in the Atlantic's history. That's our theory. <laughs> <laughs> 
you really did, took one for the team there, as it were. And I, I think it's a good example of the kind of um, tension you're talking about or that, that we're both kind of trying to figure out maybe, which is that, I mean, I think I've talked before in the, on this show that goop is bad, right? right. Like in general, it is a not good organization that gives terrible advice to women and perpetuates a lot of the problems that that it purports to solve. <laughs> but you tr- you you went into the experience of kind of having the goop lifestyle with a with a fairly generous frame of mind. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think that. Uh... You know, my my feelings about wellness as a consumer industry are are pretty negative. But I think that you also sort of have to approach wellness with an under with an understanding or at least a curiosity about why people find it so compelling. Because if you're if you're just going to look at the products as products and in the, you know, the recommendations as recommendations and not understand the audience that they're resonating with, then I, I think that you're cutting yourself off at the knees as far as understanding the phenomenon itself. Um, a lot of people go into wellness and look at, you know, crystals and things like that and and decide that anybody who finds this stuff interesting is dumb. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I, I, I just fundamentally don't. Uh, and I think that you stop yourself from asking in- interesting questions if you decide that this thing you don't like, anybody who does like it must be stupid. Um, and I think that that is often applied, you know, particularly towards things that are that are marketed towards women um, mm-hmm. and especially young women. So I, I think that you have to – I think that if you approach anything with, any, with less than genuine curiosity, you're not going to end up writing a very good story about it ultimately. Because you, as you point out, like some of the things that that the goop, you know, marketing talks about are are real problems that women have, right? Like women aren't taken seriously necessarily by the medical profession. We do have issues that that aren't necessarily easily addressed by traditional medicine, but. This solution, and also, I mean, maybe even a, a larger point here is women suffer from this oppression of patriarchal capitalism, where we think terrible thoughts about ourselves and do tar- terrible things to our bodies in hopes of feeling better about ourselves. And Goop's promise is you will feel better about yourself if you take these things, right? Because right. you're going to be well. Right. And I think that part of it, a big part of it that that some people don't understand is that in and of itself, looking at people who feel like they their problems are not being appreciated or heard or believed and telling them, I hear you, I, I understand what you're going through, and I want to help you find a way or find a product to solve that problem is, I think, a relief to so many people. Um because, you know, I'm a person with horrific doctor anxiety. I hate going to the doctor. I will avoid it at all costs. And that's because, you know, I've had so many bad experiences with doctors in the past who dismissed my very real concerns or who, you know, charged me for for testing that I, like, self-evidently didn't need. I'm a health reporter, you know. I, I have a good bit of information on, you know, on what it is I'm experiencing. I, I feel confident in my perception of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and even in my case, you know, doctors have treated me terribly. And I think that a lot of doctors who who criticize the wellness industry and criticize women who who want to believe that that these types of products might help them uh could use to, could use a little bit more introspection on on what they and and their peers have done to make people feel like they need to look elsewhere. This is slightly off topic, but it's an excuse to talk about something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that frame is one that was used by an author of a piece about Lyme disease Mm -hmm. uh, used for um, an article in The Cut. Yes. And it was such an interesting way to look at it. But the framework that she used was exactly that, was, was she went into the science of it, but she also said it's really important to understand that people don't make up these symptoms, really, right? That 
that when people feel this way and they go to a doctor and the doctor can't help them or doesn't believe them, then of course you go someplace else. Of course you start looking for answers online. And that you're not going to really make much of a difference in someone's self-diagnosis if you just deny that there's something wrong with them, right? Right. Like, and one of the most positive things I've read in the piece was that some doctors actually, perhaps in a not surprising way, one doctor that she interviewed was a female doctor who said that that's the approach she tries to take in her practice. Rather than telling people, like, you're not really experiencing the thing you're experiencing, well, let's just take really seriously what you're saying. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, doctors doctors learn a lot about whatever you learn in medical school, I guess. <laughs> you know, they, they learn they, they learn science, but I, I think that a lot of them don't really understand how to communicate with people, with their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ones that do understand that well are, are you know, some of the most in-demand doctors, uh, the people that are really hard to get an appointment with, people that, uh, the types of doctors that, that random people off the street who are experiencing a symptom that they don't understand, perhaps don't have access to. Um, so if you if you you know you pick a, a random doctor that your that your health insurance takes or that or that will take you will see you without without insurance, um, I, I think you know you're you're you might get somebody who just tells you it's all in your head. Um, and even if you're even if the symptoms that you're experiencing are a result of anxiety or a result of you know. Um, a, a mental health issue that you're experiencing, uh, telling people it's all in their head and they and they you know should practice deep breathing is, is just n- not a good way to to uh, to interact with somebody who's having a real problem that, that's affecting their life and affecting you know how they exist in the world every day, um, and that and that pushes people to the internet. It pushes people to alternative cures and things. I think a consistent theme in your pieces is is that. The mantra that American capitalism preaches that you just have to change your mindset. We say what they say, what we hear is change your mindset, change your life, right? Right. Like, and if also, if you change your mindset, you can change your exterior. And everything is about believing in yourself. <laughs> I want to when I say this is a theme, I guess I should be clear. I'm describing all of this because I think a theme in your work is interrogating that. That message. Yes, I think that it's in the best interest of marketers to to help people feel that all of the problems that they're having are problems that they themselves can solve if they do take the right steps and do the right things and buy the right stuff. Uh, because problems that are that are personal and interior and solvable uh, by one person are problems that you can market towards. You can find, you know, the right the right energy beverage or the right you know set of vitamins or the right uh, weighted blanket or something like that to <laughs> uh, to help people if those problems are things that they themselves can solve. But really, a lot of those problems, anxiety and uh, in you know lethargy and and just feeling bad and feeling depressed and you know uh and and feeling stressed out are are problems that exist because of you know big giant systems acting on people and they're not necessarily mm-hmm. things that can be solved internally and in, in with purchasing the correct product or purchasing the correct service uh but big systemic problems don't make for good marketing you realize i'm gonna have to take an ad break at some point right yes <laughs> <laughs> I think about this a lot, and I'm curious, is this something you think about in your daily life, too? Because you you write a lot about these structural issues, and also, like I said, you have a lot of generosity and, and genuine excitement about the ways that sometimes we do feel good about doing this stuff, and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, creating anything, ha- you know, is having a job problematic? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> We are part of the system. You yeah. and I are part of the system. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, the, the reality of, of working in, you know, ad-based media, which is, you know, the the option for almost almost everybody who works in media is the only option, um, is that is that the the vagaries of capitalism often rub right up against uh the the work that we're trying to do in an honest way about about the things that make people act how they act or do what they do or believe what they believe. Um, 
and you try to you try to do the work in, in the most honest way possible. And honestly, The Atlantic is great about sort of keeping us very, very removed from the business side of uh, of the publication. Um, they're very old school about that in a, in a way that I feel really lucky to be able to participate in. But it also, you know, that's not an option for everybody. Uh, you know, people people have to make a living, and and to be able to make a living doing work that you think is important and that you that you think helps people understand the things that they experience every day. Sometimes you got to read an ad in the middle of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I hope you know happens for people because of the show. You know what? On that note, we're going to hear from a sponsor. The holidays are here, and that can mean an extra mess in your home. It can also mean that you want to look extra nice for company. Grove has amazing limited-time festival scents to make your house clean and smell amazing. Grove Collaborative is the online marketplace that delivers all-natural home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you. It takes the guesswork out of going green. Every Grove product is guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, your pet, and the planet. So uh, they carry the entire Mrs. Myers line, and that's I believe that is the special sense they're talking about, including apple cider, um, in addition to, you know, your your typical, like, basic pumpkin spice. Uh, I like the apple cider smell. Uh, it's a little different. That's what it is. It's different. And apples are, I think, less particularly tied to Thanksgiving than, like, pumpkin smells for some reason. And I also love Grove because it feels like it's a real company. The last time I ordered refills of my Mrs. Meyer stuff, I got the package. Oh, and they really cut down on the amount of packaging that they use, by the way, which is something I respect and admire about them. The package came in a relatively small box, and it had a personalized handwritten note. Thank you for your order. And it was signed by someone an actual person, I assume, or they're going through a, well, I'm assuming, I'm just going to assume it's an actual person. Uh, Grove delivers all your home essentials right to your front door. They have a huge selection of sustainable and plant-based products, including all those big brands that you love, like Mrs. Myers and Method. We are all busy. I know you don't have time to waste buying detergent and toilet paper. Neither do I. So give it a try and give some of yourself some time back. With Grove, you don't have to shop multiple stores or search online to get all the natural goods you need for you and your family. They have everything in one place. The site is easy to use. They offer reoccurring shipments, and they deliver everything right to your front door. You don't have to worry about running out of anything. Join half a million families who trust Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier. Shipping is free and fast on your first order. For a limited time, go to grove.co slash friends. And that's grove.co as in grove.collaborative. Grove.co slash friends. And you will get a five-piece gift set from Mrs. Myers in the festive holiday sense. Like, oh, they've added to the ones that are available. Now available is peppermint and Iowa pine. I think I'll get Iowa pine next time. Go to grove.co slash friends to get this exclusive holiday offer. Grove.co slash friends. I think there's something all of us can agree on. Nurses, doctors, dentists, and people who work in medicine and healthcare are pretty awesome. All of us can think of a time when a medical professional helped us or a family member. And these amazing people dedicate their lives to caring and serving others. Shouldn't you show some care and service back? Shouldn't the scrubs that they wear feel good? Figs is an amazing company that makes scrubs stylus and functional for the people who deserve it the most. For years, nurses, doctors, dentists, and those other medical professionals were forced to wear scratchy, ill-fitting scrubs. Not only were they ugly and comfortable, they weren't designed with innovative technical properties to protect and hold life-saving tools. Every time you shop at Figs, they give scrubs to healthcare providers in need around the world through their Threads for Threads initiative. To date, Figs has donated hundreds of thousands of sets in over 35 countries. And I realize statistically it's unlikely that you yourself need Figs. You probably just, again, statistically do not work in healthcare because most people don't. However, you definitely have someone who works in healthcare in your life, whether it's an actual friend or family member or the person who delivers your healthcare or your dentistry. And here's where Figs, I think this is where this ad is relative to you. Wouldn't it be nice to give that person a gift at holiday time? And wouldn't it be nice to give that person a gift that would make their everyday work life better? Give a gift certificate to Figs. That is what I would recommend. If you have someone in your life that has made your life better, that has made your life possible in some small way even, 
just think about giving them a gift certificate to fix. Whether you are one of those awesome people, or again, you just want to say thanks to these deserving folks. Figs is going to make it easy for you with 15% off your first purchase by using the code FRIENDS. So if you want to just give the gift directly to... Again, that's 15% off your first purchase by using the code FRIENDS. Get ready to love your scrubs or, you know, love someone else's scrubs. Head to wearfigs.com and enter offer code FRIENDS. That's W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, offer code FRIENDS. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Amanda, um, so I'm, of course— excited about your column and I read everything you write in The Atlantic, but you came on my radar a couple years ago, a column you wrote about norm core. And I, it probably is one of those things like no one ever knows like where the seed is dropped and like what has an effect on people. But this Mm -hmm. column actually had a huge effect on me and I would just really love it. I sent you the excerpt that really hit me. And if you wouldn't mind reading it, and then I want, I'd love to talk about it a little bit. Of course. This is where the experience of living in a fat body deviates from that of someone who's simply always been like 15 pounds away from being an Instagram influencer or who experienced having a different body while pregnant. Even if I decide I want to put a true, waist-free, ankle-length prairie dress on my size 20 body, I have to think about how much worse I'll be treated by the people I encounter because I failed to conform to the harsh standards of ultra-femininity we impose on fat women, as well as whether anyone has even bothered to manufacture such a garment in my size. My own desires don't tell the full story of the choices available to me. To a straight-sized person, I'm sure this sounds histrionic because, hey, it's just a dress or a pair of mom jeans, right? And, well, it is, for you. Fat women are playing a game with wildly different stakes. Five years ago, I lost a good bit of weight, putting me just below 200 pounds, the weight that Bugbee cite, cites as the upper limit of her own experience, for the first time in my adult life. It was a strange experience in many ways, but the most heartbreaking part of it was reali- realizing how much nicer people were, are to you in everyday life the smaller you are. I wasn't even close to thin by any popular beauty standard, but the difference was stark even between being a larger plus-size person and a smaller one. There is an entire industry dedicated to the aesthetics of the body and how we present ourselves to the world that doesn't want to contend with these topics in any meaningful way, and how critical we are when we write about trends, their origins, and what they mean is the perfect place to start changing that. But first, we have to be honest about with ourselves about what's really in fashion. So, the, the stuff that hit me in that, the first thing was I'd never heard the phrase straight-sized before. Yeah. Do you want to explain what that is? I think it's clear in context, but perhaps just to be ultra clear about it. Totally. Uh, straight sizes are are the sizes the size range that's carried by most American retailers for uh, for women. Uh, that usually runs between a size zero and a size. 12 to 14, depending on who you ask. Uh, and those are those are carried by almost all re- retailers. And I, I feel like the, that phrase in particular got to me because I had never really thought about identity and size in that way, mm-hmm. like mapping it on to, for lack of a better, you know, uh, model, like mapping it on a little bit to, to gayness or LGBTQ identity, which obviously they're very different, but... The idea that I am passing as straight-sized, right? Right. The idea that I personally am actually probably one of those people who's 15 pounds away from being an Instagram influencer, I'll, no matter how I feel about myself, mm-hmm. right? Like, I can feel <laughs> bad about myself, or I can feel fat, quote-unquote, but I just, I have the body that I have, and I should recognize that. Right, that yeah. It's different. Yeah, the idea 
the way that people are used to talking about their bodies and thinking about their bodies is how how they feel about their bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, of course, super, super important. The way that uh, a lot of stuff gets marketed to women is predicated on making us, you know, at whatever size we are, feel bad. Uh, so I don't, I don't mean to take anything away from that, of course. But uh, there's also another, you know, set of experience, which is how the world thinks about your body. And how it reacts to your body and how other people uh, perceive you because of your body. And I think that those two things are, are really distinct experiences and people who are in, you know, conventionally attractive bodies, uh, which is generally, you know, thin and proportional, um, don't think a lot about how the the outward experience of their body differs from the outward experience of somebody who's fat. I think this is really important. I mean, maybe I compare this to an awakening that I had about white privilege, Mm -hmm. that there's a privilege that goes with being straight-sized, that no matter how I feel, I'm repeating myself, no matter how I feel is just true. Right. Like, I just get to have certain things and be treated in a certain way. And there's kind of, and no matter, like, I could tell, I could have a conversation with it. It's made me, by the way, I I now no longer say things like I feel fat because of this. I'm glad. (laughs) <laughs> because when I, again, sort of map it onto the other things that I care about and I try to do something about, that sounds horrible. Right. Right? Right. It's offensive. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, because like I said, I, I you know, I, I respect everybody's experience of their own body and how they feel about their bodies because I, I think a lot of people are made to feel bad no matter how mm-hmm. well they and that's true. adhere yeah. to beauty standards. But the the experience of, you know, and even in the context of fashion, which is what that was about, it's impossible for most fat women to, you know, if they have a last-minute job interview, to go buy a new suit or to, you know, go buy a dress for a funeral or something like that. Just the ability to go out in the world and select something for yourself that will get you through a stressful experience that pops up suddenly uh, just is not available to to most people over a size a size fourteen, and that's the majority of women in America. Um, and it's like those those types of things that you have to be able to plan a week in advance in advance for everything that happens in your life um, in order to to feel good in a meeting or to feel good in in some sort of you know important life event. Um, just like that wears on people over time in a way that, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody who wears a size, even a size 10 would, would ever experience in everyday life. And I think that that's a privilege that a lot of women who are straight size would, I like I said, sort of like I had trouble getting my head around it a little bit because we are so instructed to feel bad about ourselves that we think that feeling bad about ourselves is the same as actually being treated differently. Right, right. And I think that a lot of straight-sized women just don't have occasion to think about this. Uh, like, I know a lot of a lot of my friends before before we became good friends um, didn't realize that most that most stores did not carry the size that I wear. And I'm mm-hmm. not like you know I I am very much within the the sort of acceptable norm of plus size sizes. I can I can shop at any store that has a plus size range of pretty much any any size. Um, but still, like most stores just don't carry anything that I could wear. And high fashion, definitely not, right? No, high fashion, uh, a lot of brands only, depending on what retailer you're buying them from, and this gets a little bit inside baseball about how, how high fashion is structured. Uh, but a lot of places, you know, you can, you can walk into a Gucci boutique and they might only carry, you know, a particular dress up to a size eight, um, mm-hmm. which fits almost nobody in America. <laughs> um, a, a good friend of mine, instead of buying a wedding dress, wanted to buy, you know, a nice designer suit um, from Bergdorf Goodman to get married in. Um, and I went with her because I have, you know, a lot of experience in fashion and she is not a plus size person, but she, you know, got turned away again and again from, uh, from different departments and from different stores that we went to that day, uh, acting like she was crazy for being an average sized American woman and, and wanting to buy something nice for herself. Yeah. You were talking a little bit more about how your friends that didn't realize that, they you the stores didn't carry what you what you wore. Mm-hmm. So the piece that we that I had you quote from, I think it's 
like I said, it's about Normcore. It was actually a very funny piece because it was about prairie dresses, which, you know, were in like a minute ago, right? right? But maybe no one remembers them. But the uh, overarching theme of the piece, the argument you were making had to do with like, you can't just like carry things off. I believe the piece was called The Myth of Pulling It Off. Mm -hmm. Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, that... um I think ultimately normcore is really interesting to me because normcore is is you know purposeful ugliness which is not something that America is super comfortable with. Um <laughs> I think some European social cultures are a little bit more comfortable with like different, you know, with with more interesting ideas of beauty than America is. Um mm-hmm. so normcore sort of flies in the face of that. You're supposed to find the the ugliest, clunkiest, least flattering thing imaginable. And when I say least flattering, I mean something that makes your body look bigger than it might really be, uh, because that's how we decide whether or not something is attractive in the U.S., largely. Um, mm-hmm. So, and the the ability to wear this stuff is and be called fashionable is predicated entirely on being as conventionally attractive as possible. You have to be so hot that you can put on a pair of high-waisted, you know, pleated pants and um, and a sweatshirt from ostensibly from Walmart and a pair of big clunky dad sneakers and and have people still look at you and go, oh, She's super hot. Um, so so those those clothes just don't read the same way on on larger bodies because larger bodies are still not fashionable. Um, so so this trend sort of gets at the gets at the core of, I think, uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about something being trendy and we're talking about something being in fashion because uh, it really just highlights, how how thin and conventionally attractive you have to be in order to participate in trends in general. And the key insight for me was that it's not about pulling it. it like the, the phrase pulling it off, I think, is something that anyone who cares even a little bit about fashion, right, we've heard that. And what it means is that it's not about what you wear. It's about how you wear it, right? Right. That like you, you could wear just a overall barrel like they did in the cartoons and if you act like it's it's you meant to do it then you will pull it off and everyone will think you're incredibly stylish and that is to get back to what we're talking about about material culture and capitalism in general that is a message that says that you are the deciding factor right you right it's you internally. you you go yes. ahead um the the idea of pulling something off sort of shifts the the burden of beauty standards to you know, you as a person and your personality and your way of being in the world. If you were only a little bit cooler, if you were only a little bit more confident, if you would only work on your self-esteem finally, um, then maybe you too could wear a prairie dress uh, and have other people think it looks great. Uh, in reality, that's not true at all. Uh, how people perceive you and how people how people decide whether or not you look good in your clothes tends to, you know, adhere almost entirely to what your body looks like and how well your your body and your face and in yourself adheres to whatever way they think you should look. Um so it's it's not a whole it's not all up to the individual. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard, eat all the right things, drink all the right things, we're still most likely not getting all of the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients that most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms. No shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm than good. Just two easy-to-take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I have talked pretty endlessly about how much I like Ritual. And I like Ritual for a reason that relates a little bit to what Amanda and I we're talking about, since I assume this ad will run in the middle of that show, it feels good to take them. They have thought about how it feels to take a vitamin in the morning. In both a physical sense, you can take them on an empty stomach, and also in a more emotional sense, um, they smell good, they look good, I feel like I'm doing something good for my body. I'm guessing that that has an effect just as much as the vitamins do. 
it just feels good to take them. I feel like I'm doing something good for myself, and I am doing something good for myself. Ritual Essential for Women is the multivitamin reimagined. From D3 to omega-3, Ritual's Essentials for Women helps fill the gaps in a woman's diet. Their no-nausea capsule is gentle on the stomach. There is a mint tab in every bottle to keep things fresh, and you will not get the fishy aftertaste common with most omega-3s. Ritual is traceable and transparent, For obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-free, sugar-free, gluten-free, allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. You get a subscription to Ritual, and it is easy to start. It's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all those essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off their first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. Again, that's ritual.com slash friends for 10% off your first three months. I feel like we're talking about fashion and individualism in a way that makes me think like um, there's the phrase like if you want just if you want peace, work for justice. And it's like if you want fashion, work for justice. Like there's some message in here that I feels like there should be collective action about fashion, but I have no idea what that would look like. Yeah. And fashion is an interesting topic because it's a it's an omnipresent element of culture that doesn't get treated the same way that other elements of culture get treated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a way of it's a way of talking to the world about yourself uh, and, you know, in through trends and through consumer culture, we decide who gets to talk about themselves in what way. Um who gets to project, uh, you know, competence, who gets to protect, project uh, professionalism, who gets to project beauty. Um, so I think that if you, and because fashion is, is you know, consumerism at, at its purest, I think, um, it gets sort of, dis- it, it, and because it's feminized, uh, it gets mm-hmm. dismissed as unimportant, but but fashion is, you know, how we, how we make decisions about each other before anybody, anybody talks, how we, how we make decisions about ourselves. I was going to say it's how we make decisions about ourselves. Like I've been um, recovering from back surgery for the past couple of weeks mm-hmm. and feeling pretty rotten, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a friend of mine was like, you should change clothes. And I at first was like, well, yes, I know that would probably help, but I don't want to do it. And then I did. And I was like, okay, like, yes, I, I now... I mean, it was, I felt, I felt weird about how much better I felt. Right, right. Like, yeah. By it, making a choice to put on non-pajamas, which by the way, I endorse wearing pajamas all day long. Everyone should, that pants are not, pants are deal with the devil. But every once in a while, like feeling pulled together can make you feel pulled together. Right, yeah. You, fashion can be, you know, self-determining. Um, sometimes being able to put on the dress or put on the uh, the suit or or whatever just, you know, it, it changes how people how people view themselves and how people view their their roles in the world a little bit. Um, and you know, fashion is a is a social language, like anything is, um, like like anything that exists in culture. Um, so, so to pretend that you know that fashion doesn't matter when when it's like a decision that we that we make about ourselves and about each other all day, every day, you know at every point in our lives, uh, I think denies some of its true power. It makes it hard to make it part of conversations about about um, hierarchy and about uh, worth and equality and things like that. I want to get back to straight-sizedness and privilege a little bit here because a kind of hallmark of the whole crooked empire is, is people really want to know what they can do. Mm-hmm. And I am curious what, if you have feelings about that like so I had my own personal kind of revelation about this and about my privilege and I feel like the biggest impact that's had on my the way that I think about my everyday life has to do with the way that I talk mm-hmm. um, and I try to kind of also be be aware of my own judgments mm-hmm. of people and I'm totally honest I I kind of nag my husband a little bit about when he says things that I feel like are maybe not appropriate or great or fair but is that like is that just sort of i mean is that the kind of thing that people should be doing like again i don't want to answer for like an entire i mean i'm just curious like what happens next for people 
Yeah, I think that those sort sorts of casual social challenging challenges of of people around us, of coworkers, of friends, of spouses, uh, is how you change sort of like the Overton window on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, people people respond to social opprobrium. They they respond to people they they like and respect being you know put off by something they've said. Um, so I think that probably for for straight sized people the um, one of the most powerful things you can do is if another straight-sized friend of yours um, or coworker or something says says something nasty about fat people, says something nasty about, you know, somebody out of earshot at the office, says something nasty about somebody's lunch choices or something like that, um, you know, don't don't put it on on the the bigger people in your life to be the ones who who set those standards if it makes you uncomfortable. If you think it would make people you care about uncomfortable. If they were here, there to hear that, you know, say something. And it doesn't have to be, like, a fight. It can just be like, you know, that's not cool. You know? <laughs> it, it can be how you talk about anything else that you right. would want that's to, That's sort like, of what I say to my husband, by the way. I mean, I like to say, I use nag. I don't. It's actually more like, hey, you know, don't don't say that. Yeah, that's, and I, I think this stuff, you know, changes slowly. People People learn over time what kind of what kinds of things are appropriate and they they learn over time what kinds of things that they might not have anticipated that other people find find you know bad or unpleasant um so i think that those just like little interactions they don't have to be nobody has to pick a fight nobody has to um you know make a show of it but just you know just not accepting the things that people say that you think would make your the people you care about feel terrible yeah and I, it, I guess I also want to say I don't think it's about feeling a well there for the grace of God go I kind of thing. It's not. It's not about comparing, right? I think that's a tricky thing to keep in your mind. But it's not exactly like you shouldn't. You know, you should accept that you're straight sized and be like, well. I'm not and make to make yourself feel better. That's like that's what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Like, I don't feel like the job of a straight-sized person is to be like, well, at least I'm not like that person, right? You no, know? I think that, I think the job <laughs> of everybody is in a lot of ways, in size-wise, but also in like sexuality-wise, and a lot of there's just a lot of different ways to be a person that's worthy of respect and decency. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can that can happen along a lot of a lot of vectors, uh, and I think that that adding you know people of size and 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 the fat people are you know our bodies are are like they are for a reason, mm-hmm. um, and for a lot of people uh, for a lot of people hatred of fat people is like a class based thing, uh, people with less you know fewer economic resources people uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds are much more likely to be overweight, um, so uh, and. You know that's where you know stereotypes about about laziness, about um, stupidity come in mm-hmm. a lot of times because America just hates poor people, um, <laughs> and and often poor people are also fat people, and often poor yeah. people are also people of color. You know all of these things sort of sort of coincide. Um, so I think it's just about like consciously deciding and and reminding yourself over and over and over again that there are, you know, there are larger systems you know, at play in all of our lives and acting on all of us that, that determine a lot about how we get to be in the world. Um, and in reminding yourself that, you know, regardless of how those systems act on a person and what they do to their body or they, or how they treat their sexuality or something like that, that those people are worthy of, you know, respect. And it's fine for their body to be how their body is. And it's ultimately none of your business. That seems like a good place to end. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me. And that is it for the show. Well, almost. There is an article that Amanda wrote that we didn't get around to talking about, about another uncomfortable topic. Suicide. In her article about it, Amanda compares it to cancer, how people used to say the C word, weren't supposed to even mention cancer because it somehow might cause it or it was too scary to contemplate. I'm pretty sure that's how a lot of people feel about suicide. And that is one reason why I am been fairly open 
about the fact that I am a suicide attempt survivor. It is one of the foundational truths of my life, in fact. It's an important thing about me. I would hope that it's an important thing for anyone who's been through it. It's the most important thing that happened in my life. I've always hoped that by talking about it, I make it a little less uncomfortable for other people. And the other people should be those who have people in their lives who might be considering it or who might be at risk for it. Those of us who think about suicide think about it all the time. It's our friends that maybe should be having it on their minds a little more. In her article, Amanda talks about how the most successful intervention for suicidal ideation has to do with community. It is simply asking people how they're doing, staying connected. I think that's right. I think people don't realize how much just being present for someone who's struggling matters. Yes, meds help. Yes, therapy helps. Yes, pets help. But people actively caring about you, again, statistically the most successful intervention there is. In her article, Amanda and the people she interviewed talk about uh, that intervention being asking how someone's doing. And that is obviously a good thing to do. And that's a good form for communication community to take. I want to offer an iteration of that that was first suggested by my guest, Bassie Ickby, where she said, if you really want to help me, don't ask me how I'm doing. Ask me what you can do. I've thought about that a lot ever since she said it, and the difference is important enough that I'm communicating it to you. Ask someone how they're doing, and especially if they're depressed, they might lie to you. And it's also just a burden to answer. Ask someone what you can do for them. You're not just inquiring about how they're doing. You're saying you want to help. So, my friends, on this particular episode, I want to ask you not just to take care of yourselves, but please take care of each other. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.